Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. 
for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. What a wonderful passage of scripture. Perhaps most, the, the most clearly Christological psalm of all the scriptures, one that even newborns, so to speak, in the word of God and in handling the word of God might be able to rightly see the suffering of our Lord and of the victory that he accomplished. And so uh, join with me as we pray before we look at this passage of scripture. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Tonight we come to commemorate not just the cross, but the grave and his triumph over it. And Lord, I ask that you would come now and that you would help us to see how beautiful your son's trust on the cross in you was, how persistent and continual and resilient and beautiful and humble it was. We pray that you would magnify your son today in your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see quite clearly his glory and his beauty and that you would open up our ears and that your word would truly gain entry and it would give us understanding. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, you may have been able to tell by the song choice and the way in which John Gray just read the passage of scripture that we have a thing that we're doing tonight and we have a goal. I have a goal which would be to deliver you if possible, if I could even claim that much, obviously the Holy Spirit must do it, deliver you from the morose celebration of the death of Jesus Christ. It is right to mourn our sin. It is absolutely right to have, as we've celebrated as a church, a season of introspection and repentance. However, to leave ourselves there as if Christ is still upon the cross is to do him a great disservice. And it's my conviction that this passage of Scripture shows us quite clearly his beautiful love for his people and the perspective that he had which, endure, which allowed him or, or caused him to endure the cross and that through the suffering that he was encountering, he knows the end of this psalm. And so that's my goal tonight is, is to explore this psalm as an expose by the psalmist writing hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, aided by the Holy Spirit to see into the heart of our Savior as he is offering up his life. That this psalm is a, uh, it's a, it's a poem of the, the drama that is happening around Christ upon the cross. And he then has this moment, as you may have heard, between verse 21 and verse 2, in which everything changes. And I just want to say that although we celebrate Good Friday, we do not celebrate Good Friday like 
the disciples encountered Good Friday. We're going to commemorate a certain aspect of that tonight by scattering and going to our homes to give time and and contemplation to God's word and, and how we might more rightly respond to it. But we do not celebrate Good Friday ignorant of Easter Sunday. And so with that being said, I want to look at what I believe to be the most precious promise in all of the scripture of where the end of the world is going, where time is headed is shown quite clearly in verse 27, a verse that is well worth remembering in our country and in our culture. So we've been studying Psalm 20, uh, the Psalms as a church, and we've been looking at <clears throat> the Psalms as they pertain to Jesus Christ, as they reveal Jesus Christ, and we've been looking at them in the time of Lent to show the suffering that David encountered through his own sins, or the suffering that David encountered as his enemies surrounded him. And then we've been looking also at the Psalms in how they show forward or point forward to Jesus Christ. And this Psalm is no different. I want to look at this Psalm in three sections, and it relates to the way that the Psalm is laid out. First, 1 to 12, then 13 to 21, and then 22 to the end in three separate sections First, looking at the king and his distress and how he bears his soul to the Lord in prayer. And then he moves to describe how he is being surrounded by these wild beasts. So we see first the psalmist gives a expose or or a, a revelation of what's going on in his heart. And then he moves to a description of what's going on around him. And then there's this amazing transition in the psalm that is signified by quite literally nothing. There's just a change in outlook, a change in content, a change in the perspective, and the psalmist is able to then begin to praise the Lord and offer up thanksgiving, and he begins to prophesy, being given perspective by the Holy Spirit of where his deliverance, where his victory is going to go. It's going to go to the ends of the earth. In describing the context of Psalm 22, we know that this was a psalm either written by David or attributed to David. When the psalm editors were putting the books in various places, the the various chapters in their order, they put them in certain places. Some of the psalms were ascribed to people based on style, and some of them are ascribed to people based on authorship. We don't know clearly whether or not this was written by David or it's a psalm about David. When we hear in our, in our uh, psalms, this says a psalm of David, it doesn't mean necessarily a psalm written by David. It doesn't have to be a psalm that's autobiographical. It can simply be a psalm that's about David. And so this psalmist is writing a poem, a song, about the suffering that David encountered. However, we know from David's life that there is nothing in David's life that he encountered that necessitates this sort of language. Even when he was being pursued by Saul or Absalom, nothing that they did amounted to this level of suffering, that this level of distress, this level of terror in his heart as he explains that he's being melted and he's being dried up and he's surrounded by wild beasts. And so quite clearly, we have to make the connection as Christians when we approach this psalm, this has to be speaking of a king like David, someone who is going to actually suffer in, in a greater way than David has suffered. 
So, as a prophet, we know rightly from Acts 2, Peter says that David was a prophet. He, he operated as a prophet from time to time in that he saw forward to the day of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and was enabled by the Spirit to construct a story or a poem, a description of what's going to take place to this Messiah that's coming. And quite clearly, we have to arrive in those sorts of interpretations as Christians. It's not enough for us to read Psalm 22 and try to match it up with something in David's life and then settle there. We have to see the way that the Bible uses Psalm 22. There are a few Psalms in the scriptures that are used by the New Testament authors, and none are used more than Psalm 22 and 110. Depending on whether you make certain connections, Psalm 22 actually is the most commonly quoted Psalm in the New Testament, and as we're going to see tonight, it is applied directly without any translation by the gospel writers to what takes place at Jesus' cross. Therefore, I'm not going to jump back and forth necessarily between some event in David's life or, or applying it, trying to connect it to this is when he was running from Saul or this was when he was running from Absalom or this was when he was among the Philistines. None of that actually is very profitable and none of that is very sure or concrete ground. What is sure and concrete ground is that the psalmist has given you a revelation of Jesus Christ's heart as he suffers on the cross and the perspective that he had for the future of his people that by dying he would accomplish a great deliverance for them. So this this psalm was quoted by Jesus quite clearly. Jesus himself is the reason why the New Testament authors use this psalm because he quoted this psalm at, while he was on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the beginning of this psalm. And it might be no surprise to you to hear that that was the way they addressed portions of Scripture. The chapter headings that we have, the verses that we have, weren't added until after 1000 AD. And the chapters came first, and then someone else added verses. And so, just like today, we sang a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And that song is titled after its first line of the song. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's not simply saying Psalm 22 verse 1 and that's it applies to what's going on now. I feel abandoned by God. He's quoting this psalm and he's saying, I know what's happening now and I'm explaining to you, my, my apostles, my disciples, the people who are witnessing even the people who are on the periphery, they're witnessing what Jesus is doing and he's giving them kind of a, a token of, do you want to know what's happening here? Psalm 22, Eli, Eli. That's why he does that. And so when Jesus quotes this psalm, he's not saying only part of it relates to me or only part of the first portion of this verse is, this, this psalm is relating to me. No, he's quoting the entire psalm. In that day, it was, it was as if he was able to invoke in the minds of his 
hearers or in the minds of the people around him what was going on. And quite interestingly, one of the gospel writers says that the people thought he was calling for Elijah. They did not understand what Jesus was doing in quoting this psalm. But we have been given the New Testament and it clearly is showing us this is what Jesus was intending to say. I am suffering like this king suffers and I know the end of the story. In quoting the first line, Jesus invokes the entire psalm, and it's good for us, therefore, to read the psalm in the light of the cross. Jesus does this so that we will know that he's confident, as Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, that he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. I quote out of the King James because that's what I memorized Isaiah 53 in as a child, but also the translation there is quite clear. Jesus, the suffering servant, knows that he will see the reward. He's going to see the reward of the burden, the travail, the suffering of his soul. He's not going to be shortchanged. He's going to see the end of his work. He's going to see the fruits of his labor. Christ knows that his purpose or or his suffering has an ultimate purpose that is nothing less than the changing of the destiny of the entire world. That as he is on the cross, he is accomplishing the greatest act to ever happen. He is not simply a catastrophe of some sort of political drama played out in Israel. He's not just just the the kind of unfortunate... um, unfortunate victim of corruption in the religious leadership. He knows what he's doing on the cross. He knows where it's going. Though the king in this psalm is in deep distress, he calls this God my God. He does not name this God as the God of Israel, but he says, you are my God. And so at the very onset of this psalm, as we're seeing the king's distress, we see that this psalmist is trusting God from the very first words of the psalm. He's not saying God of Israel. He's saying my God. We've looked at that in Psalm 23, another psalm that's quite, quite closely related to this psalm in Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. There's that use of that wonderful new phrase that we've all learned, a merism. He's saying that no matter when I cry to you, you aren't hearing me. I'm crying out by day and you don't hear. I'm crying out by night and you don't hear. You're not answering me. And yet we have to hear this psalmist expressing his distress, expressing his burden, and the whole time he is trusting in this God who he calls my God. In the prior psalm, in Psalm 21, the king receives a number of promises that the Lord will hear him at all times. And so looking at the context of Psalm 21 on the left and Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall have no needs, we come to this Psalm 22 and we're left in absolute bewilderment. What has this king done to deserve abandonment by God? Has God revoked the promises that he's given in his word? We with the king are also left in perplexity. We have no idea why should this king be in one moment given great promises that the Lord will always hear you and then at the very next moment he's caught in a circumstance, he's caught in a trial of 
Why are you not hearing me, Lord? Why are you not answering me? In this place, God is distant. Though the king continues to try out, God seems to not hear. The king has no indication whether or not God is hearing him. That does not mean, and this is an important thing for us as believers, that does not mean that God isn't hearing. It just means that he doesn't know God's hearing. However, in response to this trial, the king does not give in to the temptation to despair, but rather he continues to trust God and he continues to praise God. Verse 3, yet you are holy, even though I'm getting no answers, you are still holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. Do you see what he's doing here? Three times he is called God, my God, in, the, in verses one and two, my God, my God. And then in verse two, my God again. And then here in these next verses, the Lord is holy. And then three times he says, they trusted in you and were delivered. And so he is giving us a indication. He's telling us, why does he trust in this God? Because this is the covenantly faithful God who never breaks his promises, who has been faithful time and again to the people of Israel. Therefore, if God has been faithful to my fathers, he will be faithful to me. The king remembers God's savings saving power over time in history with verifiable results and and fruit, and that is what he is trusting in. Not even in his own ability to trust. This hopefully will sound quite repetitive, but over and over again as we've spent time as a church in the Psalms, we've been seeing each Psalm is not celebrating the trust of David or the strength of the psalmist to believe God's promises, but rather God's overwhelming nature of the, the God who always keeps his promises, the God who always fulfills his promises and always rescues his people. Nevertheless, this psalmist has a trial that is extreme, and he uses extreme language to communicate that. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. But he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The reason your translation has quotes around verse 8 is because that verse is being said by these people who are reviling this king, who are mocking this king. He says in verse 7, they, they mock me, they wag their heads, and they say to me, let God deliver him, for God delights in him. It's important to remember that the king of Israel is not a king like the kings of the other nations. All nations of the earth who have appointed their kings usually would appoint their king based on some sort of combat. And then those kings would have sons, and those sons would then continue to be king by a passage of lineage. Just, I'm the king's prince, and then I become the king when the king passes away. But here in the life of Israel, it's important to remember the king was not chosen just simply by lineage. The king was directly chosen by God. A prophet was instructed to find a person and God set his seal. This is my chosen one. 
That's in fact what the word Messiah means. It's the one who's anointed to be king, the one who is chosen. And so these people are reviling this king in the very specific point about the nature of his kingship. Their mocking in this way is clearly cruel. It's vicious. It's directly putting its thumb in a sore, if you will. It's, it's pressing on that very particular issue which would cause the king to doubt. If God has chosen this king, they, they reason, why does the king suffer in this way? If we go back to the time of the book of Job, that's exactly the logic that Job's friends used. Job's friends counseled him saying, if, you, if God loves you, if, if, God is finding, if you're finding favor with God, how is it that you've lost all of your children and are suffering these sores and these boils and, and have lost all your livestock? Clearly, you have done something wrong to merit God's displeasure. That's exactly their sort of logic. If you're the king who is chosen by God and you're the king who trusts in God, let God deliver you. They, they mock him in the very specific point of temp- the temptation, which is to doubt God's presence, to, to doubt God's choice. All of this took place at the cross and the New Testament writers faithfully recorded those events and used the reference to Psalm 22 showing exactly that all of this relates to Jesus Christ. In fact, as we're about to read here in a a second, Matthew devotes a great amount of his time or space to showing Psalm 22 is happening to Jesus right here. In In Matthew 27, verse 37, and over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Does that make sense with relation to Psalm 22? It's about the king. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Verse 7 of of Psalm 22, all those who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Matthew's saying, Matthew's quoting Psalm 22. He's saying that happened at Jesus' cross. Verse 40, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot say himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God let God deliver him. And at this moment, if you're a bystander and you know Psalm 22 and you know that the Pharisees have read Psalm 22, you might be left wondering, what's going on here? Don't they even know what they're doing in mocking the Lord this way? He trusts in God. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Continuing in verse 43, for he said, I am the son of God. Clearly, what they're accusing the Lord of being is who he is. Not only the Messiah, not only the one to receive the throne of David, but also God's very own son. He isn't just chosen by God. He is God in the flesh. He is God come to his people. Verse 44, and the robbers who were with him, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. 
The people mock Jesus in the precise manner of the temptation, which is to doubt God's approval and God's presence. If Jesus really is God's anointed, the chosen one to restore the throne of David, how can he suffer in this way? They did not have any room in their understanding of the Messiah to see that the Messiah was to suffer this way. They didn't understand Psalm 22 applies to the Lord and countless other passages. In response to the temptation to doubt, this king then trusts in God and he he repudiates or uh, defends himself in the exact point of the temptation. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. When a baby is born, they take that baby and they put that baby on the mother. They do this for two reasons, warmth and for nourishment. And what this psalmist says is verse 10, on you was I put or cast. I was made to rest upon God and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do you see how he does that? He returns, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nevertheless, he still calls him my God in the midst of this trial. Verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. The psalmist continues to put his trust in God and he shows us that by calling to mind not only the history of the patriarchs and the history of the exodus and the history of the deliverance out of the wilderness and the entrance into the land, he calls upon also his personal experience with God's faithfulness in times past. He uses all the means of God's grace. These are, in, as it were, the scriptures to him, his living memory of the, the history of his people and his applied experience. These testimonies of God's deliverance, therefore, in the past are not indictments against God's failure to act now. The reason the psalmist brings this to mind isn't to say, you did this in the past, what are you doing now? He's saying, this is what I'm trusting in. I'm trusting in the fact that you have not changed. He's saying, the God who did this in the past is the God who will continue to do this in the future. The king, however, then begins to describe his plight. He has prayed to God. He has cried out to God day and night. He has described the the danger that is taking place around him, that the people, although chosen to be the king of the people, that the people have rejected him. And now he begins to change his focus and describe not simply what's going on in his heart, but also what's going on around him and in his heart at the same time. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Students of scripture might hear that and think to themselves that there's a use of that phrase the roaring lion in the New Testament. The devil goes about like a roaring lion. What is the psalmist saying? These people are demonic. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. The bulls of Bashan at that time were considered to be the strongest bulls in the world. I saw a video one time of this bull that was 10 years old and it had achieved a staggering weight of 800 pounds. 
And this 800 pound bull, which was, uh, it might be 800 kilos now that I'm, I, it, was, it was some ridiculous weight. And this bull looked bigger than any bull I have ever seen. And it was a very old bull and it was kept in Europe for the, the choice reason that for some reason they like, these bulls achieve an amazing quality when they're very old. Their meat becomes extremely delicious. And this bull was so big that the person who owned it had to move to a new farm because their farm was too small to keep it in a pen. And they actually had to build a pen not just of a fence, but rather walls of stone to keep this bull in, in control. This is what he's saying. He's saying there are wild animals and none of the animals around me I can contend with. Maybe I could perhaps run away from a bull or a dog or a lion. Maybe I could wrestle one of them. We know that David did that in his life, but I can't contend with many. They're surrounding me. They're circling. They're about to kill me. Dogs at this time also were not pets. We might hear this and think, okay, there's a number of dogs, but a, a better translation might be the word jackals. If you've ever seen that wonderful movie, The Lion King, the jackals show up to eat the person they're attacking, and the dogs come as, they're like vultures. They show up when there's meat to be had on the cheap. They're not going to risk their lives. They're going to go after scavenger meat. They're, they're cleaning up after the murder is what's going on. In his trial, scourging, and crucifixion, Jesus was constantly surrounded by his enemies. Not only did his disciples flee, not only did they leave and abandon him, he was constantly surrounded by people who he knew all of his earthly ministry, if not all of his life, who were trying to kill him. Think about this for a minute. The chief priest did not change that often in the life of Israel. There's one indication that they were chosen for a few years. Another place in the scriptures say that they were chosen every year. But the point is that the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leadership of that day, they didn't rotate in and out. These weren't new people that were surrounding Christ. These were people, as we saw in the sermon last week, who in John 7 and John 8 and John 10 and copious places in the New Testament had been trying to kill Jesus. This would be like if you had a, a large mafia or gang after you for years and at that moment you knew they had been trying to kill you for years and yet in this moment they're all surrounding you and you're left with them. The psalmist is using the language of wild animals to describe this company of evildoers in verse 16. And therefore he is, he's, he's revealing what's going on in his heart the turmoil, the, the strife. So, immediately before Jesus is crucified, the guards taunt him with wine. We see that in verse 14 and 15. He's poured out like water. His strength has left him. He's thirsty, and they give him a mocking drink. If you're not aware of this, you don't want to drink wine when you're dehydrated. It won't help you very much. It, it may stave off thirst for a moment, but it it won't help you at all. And so they're mocking him even as they present the wine on the, the post up to the Lord. After they had pierced his hands and his feet, the people, the Roman centurions and guards, begin to divide up his garments. In verse, eight, in verse 18, the psalmist uh, says, 
They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew sees this take place, or Matthew records this, rather. He says, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. You see, it's my opinion that the writers of the gospel, and I believe that this is the only proper opinion, it's my assertion, therefore, that the writers of the gospel are faithfully recording the historic events that take place at the cross. They're not inventing this, that God is so sovereign that he was able to see all of time, and he was able to see quite clearly what they would do when they sent his son, and he enabled this psalmist to faithfully prophesy beforehand what would take place. The reason I say that that has to be the only interpretation is the rest of the New Testament says that, as we'll see near the end. Though this king is surrounded by wild beasts, he still trusts in God, not only in his experience, but also in the telling of his trust. You see, he uses this phrase, wild beasts surround me. And we think, we kind of, if we close our eyes, we imagine that that's going on geographically, that around the Lord's cross, there are evildoers, there are Romans, there are centurions around him. But it's not just presented in the historic fact of what took place. It's also presented in the retelling Students of scripture who love chiasm, this is one of my favorite ones in all of the scripture because of what it does in centering our vision to the heart of the Lord. The structure of this section, verse 12 all the way to verse 21, centers around his trust in God in the midst of being literarily in the middle of evildoers. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Then remember how he had said, bulls, lions, dogs, evildoers. Now it's all going to unfold in the reverse. Deliver my soul from the sword. That's the evildoers. My precious life from the power of the dog. Verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Do you see how he does that? He says, there are bulls around me. The lions are roaring. The dogs are coming after me. There's a company of evildoers. A number of verses describing the turmoil in his heart. And then he puts a capstone of, I'm still trusting in this God, even while I'm being surrounded. You see, we're not just seeing the periphery. We're seeing into the Lord's heart on the cross. Those surrounded by enemies, the king continues to cry to the Lord and he does so to the point of what appears in this verse is just simple deliverance. And at the end of verse 21, there's really nothing that takes place to explain what happens in verse 22. The content or the material between verse 21 and verse 22 is completely missing. There's nothing for us to go on. Jesus Christ on his cross did the exact same thing. And astonishingly, he did it not only praying for himself, as this psalmist does pray for him, O Lord, do not be far off, come quickly to my aid. The Lord shows us his love for us in that he not only prays that the Lord would help him, he begins to pray for those who are killing him. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. They don't understand. They have no spiritual insight to the murder that they're committing. 
That's how much the Lord is trusting in his father at the time that he dies. He's not simply asking for escape from the cross. He's not asking for deliverance. He's not asking that it would end. He's asking that God would not only preserve him through that, which he totally trusts in, he's also at the same time praying for us. That quality of love, as the scriptures rightly say, is a love which no man can surpass. That is greater love than any man has. Peter records this quality of trust in his epistle in 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If you have ever doubted or wondered whether or not Jesus Christ doubted while he was on the cross, whether the Father was doing right to him or not, Peter settles the matter completely. Jesus Christ was constantly entrusting his heart to the Father, saying, I will obey, I will love you, I will continue in this work of mine to die upon this cross for the sake of my people. He was constantly entrusting himself to the Father who would vindicate him. Though this king seems to be delivered by, from death in verse 22, we know that that didn't happen to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not delivered from death. He, was, he didn't escape the ramifications of what was taking place that night. On the day of Pentecost, Peter clearly testifies that Christ, rather than being delivered from death, is delivered through death. Acts 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's what I want to focus on there, that it was a definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that God fully knew there was a plan and Jesus was in on that plan. That's why he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, saying, I know the end of this story. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Because this king has been delivered in this psalm, he then breaks out in praise and thanksgiving to this God. In verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Remember the beginning of this psalm? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? And after great description of the turmoil and the distress and the terror that was surrounding this king, he breaks out into thanksgiving and is able to say clearly, he heard my cry when I was crying to him. It didn't seem like he heard my cry. He heard my cry. After Christ was raised from the dead, he therefore told Mary Magdalene that he was going to ascend to my God and their God. He says, go and tell my brothers I'm ascending to my God, Psalm 22, verse 1, and your God. 
to my father and to your father. This king then affirms that he will keep his promises and he promises to, in this, in this verse, do what I, what I can only explain is as a peace offering. In the, in the Old Testament, there were a number of different offerings that were given. And sometimes a person would make a vow and sometimes that vow would be called a peace offering. It's different than the guilt offering or the sin offering or the ascension offering. It's a particular type of offering. And the reason why I believe it's a peace offering is because of what comes next in these few verses is that he describes that these people that he's celebrating with begin to be able to eat with him. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great, great congregation. The vow that I think he promised is a peace offering. It's a fulfillment of a wish or a desire that God was going to do on the behalf of the one who made the vow. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. People in Israel did not get to eat unless they were priests. And those who were priests would never be described as the poor or the afflicted. Verse 26 continues, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And then he blesses those people. May your hearts live forever. This king's praise spills over from himself to his brothers and cascades down to the poor and to the afflicted. As I mentioned before, the peace offering is the only offering which the people are able to eat in the temple. All the other offerings have to be either eaten outside of the temple, if they slay an animal, they can take it with them if it's not devoted to the Lord, or they slay the animal and it becomes a portion for the priest. But here this king brings an offering and it is slain. And then he says, I'm going to perform my vow and the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. The king has told of God's deliverance and therefore he tells of the, the father's deliverance and then turns his view towards the future. So remember earlier in this psalm, the king was consoling himself based on his knowledge, his memory of our fathers cried to you, they trusted in you and you delivered them. And now that he's been delivered, he begins to, by the spirit, tell of what's coming in the future, that God will continue this victory, this deliverance. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember. What? What are they going to remember? The deliverance of this king. They shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Isn't that an interesting thing for a king to assert the kingship of the God in whom he trusts? I'll let you think about that later on today. But what I think it means is this king knows that he's God. I, I think that's the only conclusion that's right. If I'm the king and the kingship belongs to the Lord, I'm the Lord. That's the only reconciliation I can do with that particular verse. God's deliverance, which was highlighted at the beginning of this psalm, talking about the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, and the people of Israel, and now this king begins to ripple and to spill outside the bounds of Israel. This salvation that God is accomplishing for this king now becomes not just a salvation for Israel, but for all the nations. Verse, uh, excuse me, in verse 27, all the ends of the earth means the places outside of 
Israel, all the families of the nations means the tribes outside in the Gentile world. This king is basically prophesying God's going to expand this covenant that we have. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to change in a radical way. It's not given just to the people of Israel any longer. Something's going to happen. And this victory that God has brought me is going to spill over to the people's around me. Verse 30, uh, excuse me, before Christ's ascension, therefore, he sends the disciples out into all the world. He says that you will first be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what is their message going to be? Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Jesus upon the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the beginning of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 ends with this phrase, He has done it. And that's clearly describing the, the, the king's trust in God did not prove empty, but rather God, trusted, God delivered that king from death in some way. And yet, at the end, he says, he has done it. And we know quite clearly from the New Testament that Jesus upon the cross said, it is finished. Beginning and end of this psalm describes what's taking place in Jesus's life. Just as Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So also as Christ breathes his last, he says, it is finished. The church's mission, therefore, is the announcement of these glad tidings to all the people that the Messiah has accomplished salvation for his people. It's not just that God has done this. It's that also Jesus Christ knew what he was doing on the cross and had the right ability to say, it is finished. He knew what it would take and he knew that it was accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We ask that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to understand your word. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to see Jesus Christ and that that vision of him would not only transform our hearts, but it would deliver us from all of the things which distract us and chiefly from the distraction of wallowing in uh, some sort of morose misunderstanding of the cross. Yes, our sin is grievous. Yes, the wrath of God was poured out on your son. And yet we see through this psalm and through the New Testament that he in, endured the cross, despising the, the shame for the joy that was set before him. God, we pray that you would lift our vision of what this world is going to look like and that we would somehow be able to understand what your word means when it says that all the ends of the earth shall come to the Lord. We pray that you would lift our vision and that you would deliver us from the sort of moroseness of spirit which would, would see history as a great tragedy, but that we would repent and then take this same, this same gospel to the ends of the earth. We ask you that this would become our rallying cry, that we would go to every place and we would proclaim that it is finished. Amen.